Welcome back to the program. The student loan crisis has reached epic proportions. Beyond the basic fact that it could be the next financial crisis with debt now exceeding $1 trillion, its impact on higher education at a time when that education is a prerequisite for today's employment market makes the problem all the more profound and complicated. It also makes it a matter of urgent attention in the realm of public policy. We're going to talk about this today with my guests, Joel and Eric Best. Joel Best is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware, and Eric Best is assistant professor of emergency management at Jacksonville State University. Together, they're the authors of The Student Loan Mess, How Good Intentions Created a Trillion-Dollar Problem. Joel Best, Eric Best, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to have you both here. Joel, I want to start with you. Talk a little bit about how we got here. This isn't a problem. I mean, it's a little bit like the frog in the boiling water. This didn't happen overnight. This has been a steady progression of events and public policy decisions that really got us to where we are today. Right. And, and um, you know, as the subtitle of the book says, uh, it's always been with good intentions. Uh, uh, we, we originally started federal student loans in the name late 1950s um, in reaction to the Sputnik uh, crisis. Uh, the Russians launched the first artificial satellite and uh, people immediately did, uh, were, they were very upset. They they'd imagined that the United States led the world in science and technology and here was something very visible that the Russians had done that we hadn't managed to do yet. And uh, they searched for a scapegoat and they, they settled on American schools and they said uh, our schools must be doing a poor job and we're not uh, teaching uh, uh, what we would now call the STEM discipline science, uh, mathematics, engineering. And so uh, the government uh, decided that what it needed was better teachers in these disciplines and it passed a big bill called the National Defense Education Act uh, and a small part of that bill was that there would be loans for people who were going into teaching in those areas or who were, were going to major in those areas. And so it was a, it was a very narrow program. It was originally uh, catching up with the Russians. Um, seven years later, Lyndon Johnson uh, passes the Higher Education Act of 1965. And uh, at that time... Uh, uh, he really switches the emphasis of the program. He forgets all about the Russians. He says, look, we are going to create a ladder of opportunity so that every uh, young person in the United States who can qualify for college can go to college. And that's a, a tremendous uh, uh, shift. And, and that so that there, there would never be the, the argument that people couldn't afford to do it. The government would help them out. Uh, and, uh, you know, it sort of morphed from there. Uh, it uh, was originally intended to be something that was primarily going to help low-income people, but it very quickly became something that middle-class families started to count on. So instead of saving for college, uh, uh, you know, you certainly continue to save for college, but the assumption was that you could also borrow a bit. And uh, uh, this has grown and grown and grown. To what extent, Eric, has corresponding to all of this, it had an impact in this disability to loan, had an impact on the rising tuition rates? Well, what, what, the, what loans do is they, they allow you 
they allow much greater access for college, which is a, a very good thing, but they also allow you to be less price sensitive, which is, is not the, the greatest thing about college. And so when, you, when you're looking at schools and you can get a, a combination of public and private loans o- along with grant aid, it becomes very easy to choose more extensive opportunities for education. And part, part of this is a, a problem with 17, 18 year olds. You know, they, they haven't, most of them haven't had a lot of experience with credit before. And so you say to them, you know, you can go to a, a state school for pretty cheap or you can go to an, an out of state school or a private school for a whole bunch more money that you'll pay back a little bit per month later. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of those teenagers just run, run those calculations and think, think to themselves, you know, what's, what's later? And so what what it does is it it allows everybody to look at a much wider range of of colleges that become affordable, at least at the time. It also has had a similar impact, Joel, with respect to the parents of these kids, because they've been extremely aspirational for their children. Yep. Yep. You you want your child to have uh, the best education. I mean, one of the things that student loans have a, a variety of effects, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Uh, one of the things that happens is that people stop thinking that you're going to go to the uh, you know, local state teacher's college, and they start uh, picking up uh, these guidebooks, U.S. News and, and so on, uh, that rank colleges. And the idea is, well, this college is only ranked 36, this one's ranked 35th, it must this be better. And so you start imagining... Um, uh, that you can uh, buy a better education. And to some degree, that's good. I mean, you'd like to have people have options and so on. But um, it, it, it has had the effect of not just making the students less price sensitive, but it also uh, means that colleges, when they sit around and think about what are we going to charge students, realize that the consumers are less price sensitive. So, like, you know, they, they can afford to raise tuition. And you know, we've all seen these graphs showing the cost of living and then uh, the cost of medical care, and medical care's cost is rising much faster than the cost of living. Well, the cost of, of going to college has outstripped medical care by a great margin. Um, you know, uh, colleges and uh, universities are raising uh, tuition and fees at very dramatic rates. And, you know, in part, this is because they know that people can get the money. So... Um, you know, there there are a variety of consequences. Some of them are good. You'd like to have people have opportunities, but some of them aren't so good uh, in that you've created uh, basically a market where nobody's worrying very much about how things think, how much things cost. Eric, talk a little bit about the economic underpinning, particularly of private colleges, and the fact that this money has become more and more central to them as they've continued to raise tuition. Private colleges are, are interesting to talk about because it, it turns out that almost nobody knows what they really cost. And what, what we see in the news is that tuition is rocketing up. You know, there are now the, the latest bulletin is that there's 50 colleges that charge over $60,000 a year, which is just an astronomical sounding amount of money. But before you even get to the, the loan conversation, you have to talk about the discount rate at private colleges, which is the calculation of what the average student actually pays compared to the sticker price. And at most of these institutions, the discount rate is now above 50%, meaning that if there's a $60,000 sticker price, the average student pays less than $30,000. And it becomes an interesting marketing issue that gets a little bit outside of the, the central focus of our book, but 
very interestingly, a couple of schools have decided to eliminate discounting and just put a, you know, one price pay, paid by all the price is what it is. And it turned out that they, they had their applications and acceptances fall quite a bit. And so we now have a, a system in, in the U.S. where at least for private colleges, everybody seems to enjoy the, the murky pricing and the haggling negotiation. Because if you, you know, if you just get a bill for $30,000, that's not as attractive on a resume as a bill for $60,000 for $30,000 scholarship. But the, the private schools are, are fairly big consumers of, of student loans. The, the for-profit private schools are, are per capita some of the largest consumers of student loans. And they're, they're really the, the canary in the coal mine where there's a lot of problems with, with student lending. And I think the, the not-for-profit private schools are a generation behind. Joel, talk a little bit about the public universities and how this has played out in the context of their increasing costs. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to the University of Minnesota uh, when uh, I was a boy, and, uh, you know, I paid $75 a quarter in tuition and fees. Uh, when I was a senior, they raised the price to $125 a quarter, and there was a near riot. Uh, and, of course, uh, we look back on that now, and, and those were those were those dollars were worth more, but that was still less than a thousand dollars and twenty fourteen dollars per year. Uh, now, obviously, Minnesota could not afford to send me to college for that much money. What the legislature had basically done is say, "Look, we're going to give Joel a free education, or essentially a free education. We'll charge him just enough so that he's paying attention, uh, but uh, you know, we're going to bet on him." Uh, getting an education, becoming a, uh, a citizen, uh, you know, paying his taxes. We're going to get the money back in the next generation. What's happened is increasingly it's been possible for legislatures to say to themselves, hey, why are we doing this? Why are we charging people who may, you know, taxpayers who may never go near a, a university to subsidize the education of students? Why don't we put the burden on those students and uh, we will, um, uh, you know, they're the ones that are going to make the big bucks after all. And uh, uh, they're not going to have a problem going to college because there are loans available. So the students uh, are, you know, picking up an increasing share of the burden. If you look at the budgets of public universities, the share of the costs that come from tuition has been growing and growing. And there are other problems. Legislators are trying to deal with increasing corrections costs. They're trying to deal with Medicaid. They've got other things to spend money on. And so it's been very easy for them to shift the burden uh, to students. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the tremendous disparity from state to state in terms of the debt and in terms of some of the issues that we're talking about, particularly as it relates to the public universities. Well, so what, what you have is you, you have 50 different states that all, all have legislatures and are all, all in a, a different situation financially. And very, very interestingly and differently from the federal government, most states have, have in their constitution that they have to have a balanced budget every year. And so one, one of the things that, that happens is that as, as states get in, in dire straits, they look around for, for things to cut. And education is one of the, higher education 
is one of the only items that, that you can cut where the, the consumers of that higher education can then use another mechanism, uh, federal loans, to, to pay for what, what they want to do in college. And so as states get, get in bad shape financially, higher education becomes an increasingly attractive item to cut. And you, you see that happening all over the country or just for the past 30 years. You see the, the state share of public higher education paid for just, just declining massively in, in many cases from, from over 50% to under 20%. And on the flip side, you see some, some states where things are going very well. North, North Dakota is a recent example with a whole lot of oil money where they're actually increasing state appropriations as, as they start finding that they have more money in the coffers. And so there, there is a large disparity between states about how much is being contributed to public universities. There is another aspect to this, that the traditional idea of four years to get a degree is, is quickly going out the window for a whole bunch of reasons, including the, the overcrowding at a lot of these public universities that make classes difficult to get for many of the students. I, I haven't experienced that, that myself as a student or a faculty member, but we, we certainly hear about it. And... One of the things recently that has shocked me is that the latest statistics show that the average college student does not graduate in four years. So you're, you're absolutely correct. But if you're, you're looking at the, the median college student, they're going to take more than four years of college. So if you're budgeting that, that amount of tuition for four years, you might be paying it for, for five, six, seven years. And so it, it can increase not, not only the cost paid for education, but it can largely increase the opportunity cost as a student is still in school instead of working. So it, it can become a, a big unplanned for financial burden for a lot of families. Yeah, I think that, that this is, this has probably increased a bit, but I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and there may be specific programs where, uh, uh, the program is, is, uh, very structured, and you have to take a particular course in the second semester of your junior year, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I think that that what is more likely to happen is not so much that the the uh, uh, institution doesn't have the resources uh, to offer the courses. Uh, there may be some of that, but I think that what's more likely to happen is that people uh, get out of sequence for some reason. Uh, they change, you know, they change their major. Uh, many, many people change majors over and over again. Uh, they, uh, uh, you know, they get sick. Uh, uh, they uh, uh, don't do well in the course and drop. And you know, you can you can knock yourself out of the four-year plan uh, very easily. Uh, I used to teach at Cal State Fresno, and uh, there were very few students uh, there who were graduating in four years. Uh, I now teach at the University of Delaware, which has vastly higher tuition, and our students are pretty much on a four-year plan. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, their parents uh, are really expecting them to, uh, uh, to finish in four years. So I think that this probably varies tremendously, and probably always has varied tremendously from uh, institution to institution. Eric, talk a little bit about what's changed in terms of the federally guaranteed loans themselves and how we've had this debate over the past several years between the government being involved in this and the private sector, the banking industry being involved. Talk a little bit about what's been happening in that regard. Sure. So in, in 2010, basically all federally guaranteed loans were transferred to federal direct loans. 
And so if you have a, a federal loan now, it, it is administered by the government. And that, that's usually the only entity that you deal with until you graduate. And what has happened is that a lot of these companies that used to write these loans themselves and have them federally guaranteed are now servicing them. So what happens is that upon graduation, once your debt goes into repayment, it's then sold to a servicing firm, and you're likely to never deal with the federal government again. And that that's a big shock for a lot of graduates who assume that I only have federal loans, I'm only going to deal with the government, and then the next thing they know, they're dealing with a private company when it comes to repayment. Other than that, since since 2010, really the, the only thing that we've changed or even discussed changing is is interest rates. Um, and so, you know, every year we have a big debate about what interest rates should be for, for new loans. And then once you graduate, we have a bunch of new repayment programs. But we haven't done anything to actually change how, how much money borrowers are, are taking out over time. And what do we know with respect to the default rate on these loans, Joel? <laughs> well, the default rate is, 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 is going up. It, uh, you know, we've been... We've been worrying about defaults for you know since the 1960s. So uh, this is not a, a completely new thing. But uh, what's happened is as tuition has gone up, uh, uh, the amount that students wind up borrowing has gone up. So you have more and more people going to college, uh, and they're borrowing more and more money. And uh, you know things really were disrupted when the Great Recession started in. Uh, in 2008, um, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, reduced job opportunities for young people and so on and so forth. If you look at recent data for young people, people who I think are under 30, who are supposed to be in repayment, that is, they haven't deferred repaying their loans, the default rate is about 35%, okay? And that's high. You know, uh, in when the Great Recession happened and the, the housing bubble collapsed, uh, you know, I had a mortgage and I continued to pay my mortgage. Ninety percent of the people who had mortgages continued to pay their mortgages. Only about ten percent were defaulting on their mortgages, and that was enough to drive the global economy into a tailspin. Uh, so when we say that thirty-five percent of young people are behind on their loans. That's a whole lot of uh, people with problems, and you know the you know we can talk about this uh, later. But the federal government basically assumes that default is not a problem. They they assume that they're going to get their money back, so they're not too worried about this. Should they be, Eric? I I believe they should. Uh, they, according to to GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles, if you don't believe lending money is at risk, then you're supposed to book the full repayment value as, as an asset. And so because government student loans are virtually impossible to discharge in, in bankruptcy, what happens is we put on the books that we're going to get paid back every dollar that was lent out federally. And it looks increasingly through, through default, through forgiveness programs through things like that, that that's not going to be, be the case. And so I think it would be much more appropriate to start assuming that there's risk in, in student loan repayment. And yet, correspondingly, we're seeing the amount of money 
out there being loaned increasing at, at exponential rates. It's a little over a trillion dollars now and projected to be almost two trillion in about four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's certainly accelerating. We're, uh, uh, we're in a situation now where we're well over a hundred million dollars a year in new loans. And, uh, so, uh, we guess in the book that around 2020, uh, we're going to hit two trillion dollars. Now that's, that's real money. Uh, and it, if you can't, if we continue to pretend that this is just an asset, that, uh, this money is certain to be repaid, uh, we're going to get ourselves in more and more trouble. It's, it's, you can't expect more people, uh, and and college, of course, has always been something that uh, uh, has uh, been a more likely option for people with more money, come from families with more money. As you democratize education, which we certainly want to do, you are increasing the share of people who come from families with less in financial resources. So... We're charging people more, they have to borrow more, they have fewer financial resources, the chances that they're going to re that they're at risk of not repaying their loans are going up. And there's going to be some kind of crisis. And and the real problem here is that we tend to fix on very small aspects of the problem and we get into a big debate. So as Eric just said, We've had these recent scenes where Republicans and Democrats are bickering, uh, you know, and, and treating as a big issue. What is the loan rate going to be for one particular kind of loans next year? Okay. And that becomes the issue that the federal government is worried about. And that is going to have next to no effect on the lives of most people who have student loans, it's going to have next to no effect on the size of the student loan problem, and in the meantime, that problem is going to grow and grow. What do we need to be doing from a policy perspective, either on the state level or the federal level, to begin to to seriously address this problem? Eric, start with you. I think the the most important thing is that the the states have a very serious conversation about returning back to historic levels of appropriation, and that that more than anything else would really slow the the rising tide of tuition at, at public universities. And be beyond that, you know, we can do some some other things that are increasingly disruptive. We can restrict loan caps, which would be be very disruptive to to both colleges and students. We could increase direct federal appropriations, which would be very expensive and wouldn't, wouldn't really change, change price. Um, really, you know, really, if we're not changing the price for an individual to attend college, everything else that we're, we're talking about is just window dressing. You know, borrowing, borrowing significantly less money at a higher rate would be much more attractive than, than huge loan balances at a, a low variable rate today. And so we really need to control control price. Do we need to be changing things with respect to grants, Eric? I Pell, Pell grants are, are obviously a great thing for for a lot of people, but the, the scary thing about a Pell grant is that you you apply for it year by year, and so it's not it's not it's like a scholarship. It's not something that's secure to you through through your entire time through college. Where if we just reduced price, that would be ideally secure every year. 
And so I would I would rather see price reductions instead of increased grant aid. Joel, comment on this? Well, yeah, it's. I mean, I think that we're we're both agreed that price is at the is the central problem, and uh, it's the one that nobody really wants to tackle. Uh, uh, you know, and so what's what's happening is we're getting a lot of conversation about student loans right now, but uh, it's conversation that is uh, not focusing on the underlying problem. So that you have people saying, "Well, let's just forgive the loans." Well, that's that's great, uh, but when you forgive the loans, the money doesn't vanish. It just means the taxpayers are going to pick it up. Uh, we're uh, seeing all sorts of proposals uh, uh, for more generous uh, forgiveness plans. Uh, that's going to shift the burden to the taxpayers. When the money gets borrowed, it doesn't fall out of the sky. And uh, the debt isn't going to disappear just because you announced the student isn't going to have to pay it. Uh, so we're, we're really having trouble uh, uh, facing up to the big problem. And I think that we get distracted by a lot of minor issues. People are complaining about uh, for-profits, and for-profits are certainly a problem. They're complaining about, uh, you know, the, the debt that students have, and that, and that certainly is a problem for, for a lot of uh, uh, people with loans. But I think that we're not seeing the uh, big picture, and we're not having the kind of grown-up conversation that we really need to have as a nation if we're going to fix this. I just wanted to expand on that very quickly, that when we're talking about repayment plans or forgiveness plans, those, those do nothing for current students. In fact, they might actually be bad for current students because they'll look at that and say, oh, these loans will just get forgiven. Maybe I should borrow more. And so one, one of the, the reasons that we don't want to focus just on, on forgiveness and, and repayment terms is that, that that only mitigates the circumstances of people that are already out of college. What should we be doing? Is the conversation different with respect to not-for-profit private universities, Joel? Well, yeah, <laughs> the for-profit institutions are, are a whole other problem. I, I'm trying to leave the for-profit out of the conversation. Oh, oh okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I think that, that if, if we leave them, if, if we leave the for-profits out of the conversation, I think that what we need to do is... is uh, you know what we've been saying. We need to focus on uh, the, the uh, issue of price and how we're going to get prices under control. And this is something that you can't do this with a magic wand. That is, the uh, uh, the federal government doesn't regulate prices at, at individual colleges. Uh, the co prices are uh, basically set uh, either at the state level if you have a big system, or a lot of times there are local. Uh, uh, things so that there are literally thousands of places that are setting their prices, thousands of institutions, and uh, you know it's very difficult to uh, you know just announce that we're going to fix that. But that's really what needs to be done. Is we really need to ad address cost. Um, if the cost of education continues to spiral out of control, uh, we're going to nothing else that we talk about is going to make any difference. Uh, how or how can we begin to address, Joel, this issue that we're seeing with the private nonprofits, the private not-for-profit colleges, where there is this sticker price versus the real price? Is there some way mm -hmm. within the policy arena that we can begin to address that? Well, we, you know, I, I don't think that 
you know, the policymakers, you can't, you can't tell private institutions what they're going to charge. I think that, that, um, uh, you know, part of the problem here is that as Eric was suggesting earlier, uh, you know, there, there, you know, some people at least seem to like the, the idea that they can get a deal. Uh, you know, they, they'd rather not have a, a, a hard and fast sticker price. They, they, they'd re, uh, rather bargain. But, uh, what we're starting to see is that because Private colleges have higher tuition and fees than public institutions, and these, these you know, so it's always been more expensive to go to a private school. Uh, some smaller, more vulnerable private institutions are discovering that they're not bringing in enough students. When you set a, a university or college's budget, you assume that you're going to have X number of students contributing, uh, you know, Y number of dollars to your your budget. And if you don't get enough people accepting your offers of admission, uh, then all of a sudden you can discover that you're going to be running at a deficit. And we have seen in recent years several small, traditional, not-for-profit liberal arts colleges fold their doors. And uh, I think that lots of people are assuming that there are going to be more colleges that collapse. And they're going to, be, they're going to collapse because... The prices have just gone up to the point that at some point people are going to say, you know, this isn't a good deal. Um, it's uh, I can't afford to borrow this money, this much money, take on this much debt. Uh, and uh, the first victims are likely to be these uh, small, uh, uh, not-for-profit liberal arts colleges. And Eric, what is the worst-case scenario in terms of default and the economic consequences of this? Many people have compared it, as, as, as we touched on earlier, to the mortgage crisis. Well, I think we're we're going to start seeing some some real pain in around 2017 when there there are going to be the very first public service loan forgiveness uh, amounts with the the federal loans, and that that at first is going to be very small, almost inconsequential, just because there were so few people that were enrolled in that program at the time. But now today. You have millions of people that are enrolling in pay-as-you-earn or income-based repayment. And when they start getting to their 10- or 20-year loan terms, depending on what, what industry they decided to work in, they're going to be increasingly large balances that are, are forgiven as non-taxable benefit by, by the government. And so seeing, seeing a lot of the, the default and forgiveness issues getting onto the books is, is going to take a couple decades. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, in, in a more near term, what you're going to see is, is, as Joel was mentioning, you're going to see some small schools failing, and then you might you might see some big schools failing. And it's you know it's not going to be half of the schools in the United States like some some other people are proposing. But there there are going to be a lot of institutions that just find that they aren't competitive anymore as everybody casts a wider net for where they'd like to go to school. Joel Best. Eric Best, their book is The Student Loan Mess, How Good Intentions Created a Trillion-Dollar Problem. Joel, Eric, I thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right.